Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. In American politics, there is a small group of leaders who are, to borrow a term from Hollywood, hit makers. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold. There is perhaps no better example of this in democratic politics than Rahm Emanuel. For those of you who need a refresher, Rahm is a former Bill Clinton advisor, turned Illinois congressman, turned DCCC chair, turned Barack Obama chief of staff, turned mayor of Chicago. And currently, he's Joe Biden's ambassador to Japan. And to add yet another honor to Rahm's long career, he's also this week's guest on the show. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. At 63, Rahm, and everyone calls him Rahm, has had quite a run in politics. As DCCC chair, he was instrumental in engineering the Democrats' blowout win in the 2006 midterms. As Obama's chief of staff, he was at the forefront of the stimulus, Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, and other big debates that defined the first half of the Obama presidency. As mayor of Chicago, Rahm led the nation's third largest city through one of its most tumultuous periods. Unlike many politicians who go out of their way to be agreeable and to satisfy every constituency, Rahm is famously confrontational. Long ago, his aggressive style earned him the nickname Rombo, after Stallone's 80s action hero. And many of his most prescient quotations have been too thick with expletives to print. His style has served him well in some instances, and it's been his downfall in others. Recently, in what might sound like a practical joke, President Biden has given Rahm a new assignment, to be a diplomat. Since March of 2022, Rahm has been the ambassador to Japan, and not surprisingly, he's shaken things up. These days in Japan, he's known not so much as Rombo, but as Rahm-san. He has been at the forefront of new multilateral agreements between the U.S., Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. He's agitating for allies to stop what he calls Chinese economic coercion, and he's been a key player in a controversial effort to legalize same-sex marriage in Japan. This week, he joined me by video conference from the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. We talked about his role organizing our allies around Putin and China, how hard-nosed politics is actually great for diplomacy, and why, even when you're dealing with the President of the United States, it's still much better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Ambassador, tell us a little bit about policymaking and what it's like actually being an ambassador. Conventional wisdom is you're very, very constrained. You have to be very careful not to say anything that uh, undermines or contradicts uh, you know, the official policy of, of the United States. On the other hand, you know all the, the players back home very, very well. Uh, I'm sure you, you know, 
uh, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, and obviously you know all the the, the senior people in, in the White House and 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 President President Biden for for many years. What kind of leeway do you have when it comes to policy uh, t- towards Japan? How much are you at the table when when that's being made versus all right, Rom, this is the policy, go do it. Yeah. Give us a I little mean, bit of a flavor of what that's like. Yeah. And, uh, you want me to kind of take the curtain and remove it? Yes, please. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth is there's no one rule set. Yeah. So let's go there. Look, I, I get a classic example. I don't want to overplay the role, okay? Yeah. I went to see the Medi minister. Uh, so I get here end of January. The war in Ukraine starts one month later, literally 31 days later. And uh, I made a practice of going to see every one of the top ministers and uh, foreign minister, defense minister, you know, Medi, their trade and co- their equivalent of our trade office and commerce in a single department. And without, this is without the talk, I'll give you one within consultation with them, uh, without really alerting the White House, but knowing that there was discussion, obviously, all across the globe with our allies about LNG helping Europe get through this, what was predicted then to be a horrible winner. I talked to the Medi minister in our private meeting, and obviously Japan, I want to be clear, this is an independent country, and they make their own decisions. And this comes back to our first question, Ryan, when we talked about knowing politics. I said, look, don't think of this as a move against Russia. Japan yet hadn't made kind of a strategic shift. When Fukushima happened, the first set of countries to come to Japan's energy security were Europe Mm. and the European countries. They diverted their energy to help Japan in its time of need. So I'd like to think that what you would look at from your imports and diverting them over to Europe, you're not picking between right now Russia and Europe. You're paying back a friend that came to you in their t- in your time of need in their time of need. So the Medi minister said, do you mind when you go downstairs and go back to the uh, uh, the embassy, not say anything? And I go, and now talk to the press. I said, fine. So on my way back, I'm walking back. It's about an eight-block walk. I, my phone starts going. And I said, what did you say? What did you say? I said, what do you mean? And they go, well, they made, just made this announcement about diverting three cargo ships of LNG to Europe. Now, I want to be really clear about this. They were obviously discussing this beforehand, how to do it. But understanding the political strategic, what was that they hadn't yet made a strategic shift on Russia versus Europe, they had a longstanding policy here, but understanding a different way to think about it and helping them construct a different reasoning and knowing politics was really helpful. Did I clear it with the State Department? Did I cl- No. No. But on the other hand, as we were going through, or Japan rather, was debating for a long period of time, internally, there were change in a defense posture Uh, both from the budget size, but also what they were doing. We had a very clear U.S. set of positions. You don't go farther than those. But they evolve and change as the debate here changed. And you do it in um, close coordination. So it really depends. You know, I just example. Let me give you another example. I worked aggressively on helping arm the semiconductor, which is 
backed by SoftBank, list on NASDAQ, not the London Stock Exchange. The Prime Minister of London was aggressively, and I met, aggressively pursuing it. Yeah. I went very hard with NASDAQ and ARM, et cetera, uh, and their leadership. Why NASDAQ or why America? And then why NASDAQ specifically was the right choice. Now, nobody in diplomatic school tells you work on listing of a company on one of our right. exchanges. If anybody was close to coordinating with, it would be Secretary Gina Raimondo. Gina's a very good friend. Where I told her I was doing certain things, she says, just keep me informed. If you want to say I was I was uh, running rogue, I was running yeah. rogue. It, I'm getting, yeah. But it really depends what is the topic. It depends on different things and certain things as long as you're not really creating a conflict or you're doing stuff to enhance you don't run i mean my general attitude i know this comes as a shock to you right is usually uh say you're sorry afterwards don't ask for permission because you're going to be sitting still for a long time and as you probably know and i'm self-aware patience is not one of my strong suits <laughs> i i have heard that before <laughs> yeah my I, amy amy always said that if we had a fourth child she was going to call it patience so there would be a daily reminder yeah, of a value. Well, I call patience a waste of time. Well, I know Zeke very, very well, and I, I know Ari a little bit, so I know enough about you guys that, to know that it runs in the family. Yeah, yeah, that's not a uh, ROM problem here. <laughs> uh, tell me about the transition, though. Tell me about the, let's start with the transition of going from, I mean, especially from mayor of Chicago, forget about chief of staff and being a congressman, but the, the most rough and tumble you've probably ever had in politics, correct me if I'm wrong, w was mayor. What's it like going to the most mm. diplomatic country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the country that has the reputation? Maybe you've learned that the reputation is wrong, but the country that has, you know, it's almost like a joke. Rama Emanuel becomes mm. ambassador to, to Japan. I'm no. sure you've heard this many times. How did you prepare? Well, first, let me say, uh, before we get to Japan, a lot of people think, as the question belies, that somehow the diplomatic life is separate from politics. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If people are involved, breaking news, politics is involved. Um, and so a lot of what, whether it's chief of staff, mayor, congressman, senior advisor to President Clinton, all politics is uh, personal, not just local. Um, one anecdote, Fair. when I was mayor, mayor-elect, I met with all 50 aldermen one-on-one. -on -one. And just by way of reference, not that that was the matter, but never lost a single vote in the eight years. And so here's the same thing. I have spent a lot of time getting to know uh, individuals in government, out of government, in business, in the media, because all politics is personal. And I think it, when it came to another anecdote uh, or an analogy, when uh, helped work with the Japanese government to come to a decision to be the first government in the world to send LNG to Europe uh, in the early days, uh, politics all being personal and understanding power, understanding communication, understanding how to message stuff, turned out to be really beneficial to being a diplomat. Now, the other thing is you got to know context. And so I have spent a lot of time talking to experts because while politics is generic around the world. It is also specific to a culture and a political culture of a country. And I'm learning something every day. It never stops. And you pick up on that. So I, I would not call myself anywhere close to an expert on Japan. 
I'm learning something all the time, but in the 18 months, I've gotten, I think, a feel. But I also think it's important to, I think some of the analogy or some of the kind of stereotype, oh, Japan is this. Yeah. I, I, let me say this. I, I could list you 10 things right now that everybody said will never get done and they've gotten done, not because I'm here, but because there's a sense of uh, urgency, there's a sense of seizing the moment, there's a sense of the importance of this time, there's political stability. And so um, my guess is in America, a lot of Japanese experts need to update their assumptions. That would be my unsolicited piece of advice. The two big policy issues that have defined your tenure there and that you've written quite a, a bit about have, and they're related, of course, is um, China and Ukraine. Uh, you've, you've talked and written a lot about China's coercive trade policies, yeah. and you've done a, a lot of uh, public diplomacy, um, making sure that Japan recognizes the, the China that we see. Let's start with uh, your mandate when it comes to U.S. policy towards China. Just sort of lay that out for us. Yeah, so let me step back. First, I think this is true, not just U.S.-Japan relation, but for every country, which is the three C's that have changed the world in the last three years. COVID, the conflict in Ukraine, and the coercion by China. Those three C's, COVID, conflict, and coercion, have upended all the assumptions of the last 30 years. And every country, you could see our CHIP Act through that prism. You yeah. could see the, the discussion about supply chain through that prism. You could see the updating of our industri- military industrial foundation through that prism. That's also true for Japan. That's also true for France. It's also true for NATO. It's also true for the UK. Just go through the whole, every country based on vulnerability, strength is making adjustment. Second, I kind of, the component that I think is a level setter is look at China as three circles, one tight, one outer, and then one on the very outskirts. The first tight circle is the relationship between the Communist Party and the people of China. The basic premise there was uh, you give us power, we'll give you economic growth. Well, that is under massive economic strain. 20% unemployment among youth, which probably means it's 25 or 30, which also means since you have a one-child policy, 25% of your mothers are really upset right now. It's probably higher because the, you can't trust the stats or it's uh, just yeah, hard to- you can't, you yeah. can't trust the yeah. stats. You can't trust the Communist Party to tell the truth on that. Second is a massive debt overlay, uh, both in the housing area and in the public sector, and you have capital outflow. So one anecdote or one p- analogy, rather, last year, China experienced more labor strife than they have in the last decade. Telling you that there's massive political strain and economic strain in the system. The outer circle in the region. China is defined by conflict. Two land conflicts in December with India. Two coastal conflicts with the Philippines. Constantly conflicting with Japan on the Senkaku Islands. Hitting us not only with the spy balloon, but tracking our boats and our ships. Also true for Canada, also true for Australia. Conflict everywhere in the region, which has helped America strategically reorganize, which is why China was so upset with what we did between the Republic of Korea and Japan, between Japan, ourselves, and the Philippines, Australia. That conflict, the, President Biden has done a masterful job of maximizing political uh, alliance building and ally strength. And then the outer circle, if the inner circle 
or the second circle rather, is defined by conflict. The outer circle is defined by charm. They're trying to, in both the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, Europe, go on a charm offensive. I think uh, in Europe, we've uh, done a great job in stymieing them. They've done a horrible job for themselves in Africa in the Belt and Roads. So it's not one China. And you got to realize when you're talking, are you talking to the inner core, the Communist Party to the public of uh, China, the outer core to the region, or the outer ring, kind of the Saturn's moon circle, uh, are you talking about their charm offensive? And my view is in the relationship with Japan, prepare uh, our number one ally. I don't mean to, <laughs> uh, this may be a little too political, but uh, in this sense that I, I uh, Japan's like the swing state, the swing vote here. And what the, <laughs> but I say How that, so? I, I, I know I say that tug in cheek, et cetera, but no, because yeah. Japan's is such an, it's the third largest economy. They're unbelievably well, if you look at the polling, they're unbelievably well respected in the region, whether that's in the Philippines, that's in Vietnam, go around the region, the ASEAN countries. So they have a huge amount of political reservoir, huge every year in, year out. You know, Japan does more economic development in the region than China does, almost two and a half to one, uh, two and a half to one. So their development and economic assistance in the region is a real strength to the alliance. Third, their investment in their deterrent capacity and putting a capital D behind it is a tremendous strength to the United States. And so when you go back to the core concept, we're not just in alliance protection, we're in alliance projection. When it came to the March 3rd vote in the UN, go back a year, condemning yeah. Russia, yeah, Japan went out, aggressively discussed and talked to the ASEAN countries, and eight, of the Asi- ten, eight out of the 10 ASEAN countries, 80%, voted with uh, the United States and Japan in condemning the invasion. Four of the eight co-sponsored the resolution. That's alliance projection, not just alliance protection. That's a confident Japan moving out. And I also, the, Kenan, yeah. you, you said I had two things. I would say, you know, Japan is the number one for, foreign direct investor in the United States for the last three years. We are the number one there. So there's also an economic security component, whether that's why when we did the G7 right before, Japan made such a big uh, investment in Micron's facility in Hiroshima. Uh, Micron is one of the, like IBM, one of the largest uh, investors and employers here in Japan, is a two U.S.-based companies. So there's a lot of economic components to this, supply chain components to this, let alone on the security and diplomatic side. How much has the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration affected U.S. policy there and in the region? In other words, how good, much really do good question. countries feel like they need to hedge in terms of their partnership with the U.S.? Yeah. I, Ryan, I, I don't mean to cut you off because I've been – I think I want to, like, America wake up. One of the things that I think is underappreciated by, about what President Biden has accomplished, we always talk about alliances are kind of sweet spot are strong. That is so true. And the president, through personal work, through – the hard work, and I can see it firsthand here. I'm sure that's true for my colleagues who are representing us in the European capitals. When you energize alliances, you give confidence to allies, they will go farther. 
they're not, they won't do just the bare minimum for America. They will do something more. And I think that there's hundreds of examples where, and I'm not going to speak for uh, my colleague, uh, Phil Goldberg in Korea or uh, Mary Kay in the Philippines, but because of that confidence, allies and alliances gotten stronger. Jake was just here. Jake yeah. Sullivan, rather. Yeah, tell us we about had, that we, trip. We, well, we had a meeting between the Korean, Japanese, and U.S. National Security Advisor on one day, and then the Philippines, Japan, and U.S. National Security Advisor on the next day. That's confidence in your allies to work with the United States and not just do enough to clear the bar, but to go farther. And I just think President Biden has actually done a tremendous job and his team has done a tremendous job of giving our allies the confidence in America and in their alliance with America to go farther. You give people insecurity, they're not going to trust you. And I actually believe less about hedging against America, more about taking this unique moment and running up the score. The opposite of what's going on is the CW in America. I totally, and I see it firsthand now, obviously, separate from America, what the work that's been done by the Japanese uh, prime minister, the president of the uh, Republic of Korea together, they worked through uh, a lot of issues, built a personal relationship. It has paid huge benefits. They've done it from their own foundation and strategic view of seizing the opportunities of the 21st century and facing the challenges of the 21st century together. We have enhanced that, but giving allies confidence makes them stretch a little farther. They did it. Yeah. They both deserve a tremendous amount of credit on their own. But I think Washington, uh, breaking news, got this one wrong. It's not based on you can't trust America. It's taking the moment that President Biden has provided and the United States as a whole and run up the score now because there's uh, understanding firsthand experience existentially. Look at what NATO has done in the capacity. That means there's an opportunity here through allies, through alliances to do that. Well, I'm just curious, how much do you concern about a change in administration uh, drastically changing uh, alliances uh, in, in the region. And um, and so Look, sometimes I, countries there are a little more cautious about um, how much they want to piss off China and uh, cozy up to the United States. How, how much did you hear when you started there versus now or just in general? Look, I mean, I mean look, uh, Ryan, you, uh, you and I can pick up the paper. There's great coordination among allies on supply chain. There's great coordination among uh, the Republic of Korea, Japan, uh, Taiwan, United States, and Dutch on uh, uh, semiconductors and the parts that go into it and uh, building a kind of more cohesive strategy between the uh, five respective countries. So that's a development that tells you doubling down, not walking away. Um, as just one example, I think the one the one thing that has taken, not me by surprise, I can't speak to Latin America. I don't want to speak to everyone, but here, and I've talked to my colleagues in other capitals in the region. This is a region desperate and desirous of more of America, all of America, not just our aircraft carriers, not just our men and women in uniform but our diplomatic uh, surge, 
our economic surge. And if you want a free and open Indo-Pacific, we can't put all the burden on these incredibly uh, brave young men and women of the United States Armed Forces to be the only thing we contribute. And I have been on both the Ronald Reagan and the Abraham Lincoln aircraft carriers, taking prime ministers and the foreign ministers, those aircraft carriers. I went just a week ago for the birthday of the armed army, a 248 year. I went running with about 250 uh, army uh, uh, members and their leadership. So I would just say to you, they want that part of America. They want what they have seen from uh, Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan, a very and Wendy Sherman, a very robust diplomatic front. And they want America economically, like what we've seen when we worked together to get uh, uh, Panasonic to invest in, the, in Kansas with a new battery, and Micron to be investing here. They want all of America, and we want to put all of America, because when you do that, you not only strengthen your allies— you actually give acquaintances, your acquaintances confidence. There are countries that are not allies, but want America as that counterweight to a, com- to a China determined on conflict in the region. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. On Ukraine, Rom, one of the things, Ambassador Emanuel, hmm. sorry. <laughs> I bet you that I bet you that gets edited out. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've got to keep that in. <laughs> yeah, Ryan. What do you yes? You can call me Ryan. <laughs> Mr. Lissa. I have, I have no Mr. title. Mr. 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 Lissa. <laughs> Wait, so is Ambassador your highest title? So is that what people will have to refer to you? Uh, no. You uh, want my highest going... title? You want my highest title? Father. Don't say father. I knew you were going to yeah. say that. Uh, that is my highest style. Yeah. I am so proud uh, now that all three are done with college and, or well, I shouldn't say that. One is in graduate school. I am, That's the highest title. Uh, congrats. You've got had. a great empty nesting, jo- empty nest job here. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, <laughs> a, 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 I didn't that's know a my good kid. one. <laughs> so <laughs> when the Ukraine war started, you advocated um, in, in one uh, piece in the Japanese press, asking the Japanese, one, to increase their uh, nuclear energy capacity and also to decrease their um, imports of uh, natural gas uh, from Russia. Uh, Very similar to what we were asking our European allies to do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the first one, very controversial issue in Japan because of the 2011 tsunami. Fukushima, yeah. What, um, has there been any progress on the energy front? Yes and no. Like, it's a work in progress. So if you did a status kind of medical update, here's what, again, let me step back, level level set the uh, context here. In international uh, trade and international economics or economic diplomacy, 
One measure which defined the last 30 years was market access. Going forward, while I think that will still count, it won't count like it used to for everything, will be energy stability and security, which comes in with climate change. And I think uh, America uh, helped Europe face down Russian economic coercion on energy. There would be no Europe today in the economic and political and strategic position if it wasn't for America's energy capacity, and that's our new arsenal of democracy. Here in uh, Japan, they import more LNG than almost any other country in the world. That's just one energy source. But there's, I think, I won't have the exact number, seven or eight of the 56 nuclear facilities up and running. Uh, the prime minister, first and foremost, has called for them to get started again and get another 12 up and running. It's a big piece of their energy security. We're working with them. They have a huge potential on geothermal. Chevron just announced a, uh, an, a beta test with a Japanese company on geothermal and doing it from like a hydraulic uh, angular because of the local areas of onsens, that could be a big breakthrough of powering Japan's uh, geothermal contribution to electricity. They have offshore coast, but also, look, 10% of their LNG imports of just the LNG piece comes from Russia. I think if you're one that the overall LNG component should be reduced, but that said, the United States from Alaska is six days by boat and no strategic choke points. Every other component, whether that's from the Middle East, Australia, or other parts of the world, or Russia, it takes on average 18 days and has to either go through the Taiwan Straits or the Strait of Hormuz. So we are a better bet as an ally. Why we haven't they sw switched yet? It's a, well, there's, first of all... You wrote this op-ed, I see uh, you wrote this op-ed in December. It's already June, not wrong. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Mr. Lizza, uh, 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 so I will just say to you, they are making a lot of moves on the green technology. They just passed in this last session a huge investment piece for the green transition. I think if you look around the world, but also here, there's five. Uh, if you think that wind and solar price points have come down dramatically, making them more uh, affordable. The next five energy components that I think are going to play a major role across the globe, J Japan's no different. Small and medium SMR nuclear. Okay. TerraPower, yeah. new, new, new scale, big players there. Methane-free LNG. Battery storage for wind and solar. So in the off hours, so to say, they become more like a base load than something else. Hydrogen as uh, a major uh, piece of that. Yeah. And then uh, carbon storage. That's the next technology frontier on both energy security and climate uh, kind of greenhouse gas reduction. To me, Japan is perfectly poised when you look at the coastal line, you look at the geothermal to be a major, and you look at their 20-year head start on hydrogen to be a major uh, contributor to America's effort of being kind of an arsenal democracy when it comes to our energy resources. And I say that not just LNG, but across the waterfront of technology, what we have in wind and solar, batteries, et cetera, 
uh, hydrogen that's now uh, grants coming out of the government. So they are doing things. They've now put resources. But like everything else, even for us, it takes a tremendous amount of persistence to make this transition work for everybody. Let's talk about uh, an issue that I think our listeners will be really interested in hearing about is Mm -hmm. what is going on with uh, same-sex marriage in Japan Mm -hmm. and what your role has been. Uh, Where do you want to pick up the the beginning of of that story? Tell us where you first sort of got involved with that. And obviously, I want to talk about how delicate it is for an ambassador to Mm -hmm. speak out on any um, internal political issue. Um, and also I want to, you know, hear a little bit about, is that a part of U.S. foreign policy to, you know, to promote that internally in a, in an allies? Well, it's, uh, I mean, Ryan, I've been working on this my whole life. Um, well, th- and yes. so, so, and so that's one, but two, there's this office in the state department, a special envoy just on this issue. So yes, it's a part of American foreign policy. Yeah. And third, yeah. I got involved in this early on. I mean, if you go back even before it became moving legislation in the diet, I was meeting with mayors and city co- and uh, uh, governors as they were changing their own laws, kind of like what Chicago. I, in I Japan. Was, you mean in Japan? Japan? Yeah. yeah. So my general, when I first got here on this whole issue and looked at the politics, yeah, I said, which is not different if you go back to the United States. Partner benefits and same-sex marriage moved at the local level right. before it moved nationally. Well, right. that was true here in Japan. And so mayors and governors, based on their own demographics, were ahead of the national political system. Now, yeah. I should probably pause. I'll come right back to that. In America, we have a history where change bubbles from the bottom up. That has been our history and our political culture. Japan has a history, if you go back... Uh, more where change goes from the outside in. Just has been historically. It's not the same. But I when, started When you mean outside that. in? Look what at the Meiji mean? period where they opened up to the outside world, and that became the impetus for a lot of change in political and stuff. So that's just a, a, an observation of different kind of political history, political culture. So we, prior to, let's say, five months ago when the legislation started to move in the diet, of the country was covered by municipal laws that was either permitted gay marriage or uh, uh, on the public side uh, permitted and uh, allowed for partner benefits. Five months ago, somebody in the prime minister's, a staff member in the prime minister's office made a comment about not wanting to live as have neighbors that were uh, gay. It became a controversy. Prime Minister commits to moving legislation. And let's go over. Max acts very decisively. The staff person is uh, uh, fired from the Conte, which is the Prime Minister's office. And the Prime Minister makes a commitment to move on legislation at the national level. So you have all this, what I call, what people technically call sub-national, but mayors and governors We've been working with mayors and governors. I've been doing press conferences, calling in and when they make changes, issuing press releases, praising each municipality as they move along. As the legislation is moving on the track to some kind of consensus, that legislation had failed in 2017. So you had to wait until 2023 and you took it uh, an impetus of 
somebody in the prime minister's office making uh, an off-color comment to kind of energize that track. Simultaneously, in another venue, there had been three court cases over the last seven months across the country where saying laws uh, uh, against gay marriage were unconstitutional. So you have two different forums kind of echoing each other, moving simultaneously. So um, we advocated uh, from the embassy, consistent with the special envoy office or in the impetus of what the president gave as a direction, to create what I think is a, a political space to pass legislation, but also to do it in a way that reverberated beyond the parliamentary system into the court system. We don't have a role in the courts. We don't have a role in the diet. I want to be clear, full stop. But as America, given that w- the president has his special envoy, we advocated for uh, more comprehensive legislation. Two years running, I've walked in the pride parade like I did as mayor, like I did as congressman, spoke out on behalf of what I believe should be the policy, that there's not gay marriage or straight marriage, there's marriage. Well, what was the public the, reaction? You're look, very active on, uh, on, on Japanese Twitter, I understand. Yeah, so let me, and, let, and, let me say one thing. I haven't seen recent data in America, but anywhere from 70 to 75% of the country is pro-gay marriage. All right, so it's either not, at or above what we're at, what, what, what we're at in the United at, States. Yeah, somebody said we're at sixty-five to seventy. I don't, I haven't seen any recent data, so I don't know. But that's not like a, a fifty-two forty-eight issue. So the the public, the political system is lagging behind public opinion. Well, you said it, I didn't. But yeah, there's so, a I, so, it, so I, it, all I was yeah. saying was, which is, and I really believe this. You have hunger, you got civil strife. You have climate change. You have an ongoing conflict on the continent of Europe. We're going to get worried about two people that want to create a home of love. That's, that, I would say that's 20th out of the top 10 things I got to worry about. I mean, of all the things across the globe, people are starving. There's massive amount of hunger. There's a war in Europe. There's the consequences of climate change that are upending the world. Two people love each other, want to create a home. I think that is one of the uh, somebody that's seen the beauty of my three children and a home that we've created. If you can create a home of love, we should be running to that and embracing it. And that's what I said. And that's what I believe. And I probably, if I was being somewhat self-aware, there are times I probably were a little a little over my ski tips. But on behalf of, and it's not that I get scored. You did a video uh, on the issue, right? But got some attention. (laughs) Eight million views. (laughs) 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 Somebody noticed it in a country of 127. But, you know, as did 15 other ambassadors. Did I organize it? Yes. Uh, But it was the same amount of ambassadors that all were on stage at the Pride Parade before the parade, all speaking on behalf of a set of values that we hold. Now, I give Japan and the Japanese political system and the public a lot of credit working through a set of both political, cultural, economic set of issues. In the same way that the United States, when youth go back in our history, take it 50 years or 30 years, whichever milestone you want to start at, and you go through Integration of the armed forces, marriage equality, partner benefits, anti-hate crime laws, 
you look at it all. It takes time. It, it takes time, and it takes a lot of working through, and there's a lot of, yes, there's politics, but there's also a lot of emotion. There's a lot of feeling of losing control. There's a lot of things of embracing something new. And so, um, as I said, uh, you know, in many ways, Japan, while they're passing their first legislation, the courts are also making a set of decisions that accelerate 30 years into a very fast time frame. And so what this, what's, so the courts are, have uh, have ruled against same-sex marriage bans. No, oh, yeah, against bans. Yes, against bans. bans. I, yeah. And yeah, the, they and said the, they're unconstitutional. Said they're unconstitutional. Which, so which very similar. At some, yeah. at some point, there's either one or two more cases to come through the system. Uh, if let's say they are the same as the first three, then at some point, the national government is going to have to change the law, so, which has been the practice here so that the laws are consistent with the principles embedded in the Constitution, which is very explicit about discrimination. There's no ambiguity in the Japanese Constitution when it comes to discrimination. Yeah. It's very clear. So just to be clear, what's the status of the legislation in, in, in the Diet? And it passed. It passed. And Both so the lower and upper house. It's now, now they're into the promulgating what does it mean uh, to do education and tolerance. I called you Rom. I called you ambassador, oh, I, but I, I just realized that that uh, I understand that in Japan you're often known as Ramson. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Or according to the Washington Post, the undiplomat. What do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> I would prefer the undiplomat. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Well, you don't want to I, like. I don't know. I just sometimes I think the whole diplomatic thing is many shades of gray. And the last thing I am is just one shade of gray. <laughs> Here's my thing. Yeah. What I want to be, I don't want to care what you call me. I care that when I uh, leave Japan, uh, I've made the I've done my role and my part in making the alliance stronger. And you can point to very specific things to show that. Well, Mr. Ambassador, you've really changed. You've become very diplomatic. This is the most diplomatic interview I've ever had with you. Uh, well, yeah, I can't wait till when it's off the record. I get to tell you what I really think of you. I, I, get, I, I, I know. I know. Well, maybe, but, I know, look, maybe. No, I'm kidding. You know, You're, maybe, uh, I would just say this. I, I get all the reputation, blah, blah, blah. The fact is, you couldn't have done on certain things what I've done in my life. If you didn't push the boundaries and also work with people across uh, the aisle, but also different perspectives, whether that was mayor, congressman or whatever. But I'll also fight really hard for what I believe in. Let's wrap up with this. I think people will want to know when you mm -hmm. finish your tenure there, um, what office do you have your eye on back <laughs> in the United States or job in the administration? What's next? I have another year and a half. I mean this. I'm totally focused on making sure my first job, uh, which is a job the president asked me to do, uh, that I get it done. And I get it done right. Because the worst thing you could do uh, if you were ever thinking about doing something else is uh, you take your eye off the ball and have something get messed up. So that's number one. I haven't made a decision of what I'm going to do. I obviously love public life. Uh, and I think it's premature right now given that uh, everything that's going on, not only here with the job, but in politics to say that. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm young enough that I still want to do something in public life. I like doing something in public life. Where that goes, how that goes, I don't know. 
Ram, Mr. Ambassador, Ramson. No, it's actually but, to you, thank- to you, it's your excellency. Go ahead, practice, <laughs> practice that. Come on, Ryan. Get, get, your get excellency. No, wait, say that again. I, I'm happy. Hold on. Your excellency, Ram. <laughs> no, your excellency, Mr. Ambassador, Ram Mr. Emanuel. Ambassador. Practice. Let's work on this, Ryan. Your excellency, Mr. <laughs> Ambassador, Ram Emanuel. Thank you for doing this. Let's do it, it again uh, okay. next year and, and, and catch up again. I really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to David Toledo for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.